Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130-AG-61, Law of the Levert, Seventh Commandment, Deuteronomy, DOI 25, verses 5-10. Our scripture is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, the Law of the Levert. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. If brethren dwell together, and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from off his foot, and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loose. This law of the Leverate certainly will not win any popularity contest in our day and age as a law that people are interested in. Nonetheless, it is an important aspect of biblical law, however much neglected today, and it has a long and continuing history in Western law. Earlier, when we dealt with the biblical law of marriage, we saw that monogamy, one man and one woman, is the biblical standard. That more than one wife represented a tolerable but a lower way of life. That the biblical standard is the family. The bigamous or polygamous family represents a lower standard, but it is not a sin. The biblical law is totally intolerant of adultery or anything that detracts from the family, and in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death. The family, even in the lower form, however, has status. It is interesting to note that one scholar, David R. Mace, whose perspective is not in terms of a Christian standard, but sociology, has written that the true cause of Hebrew polygamy was, and there can be no doubt that it was, the desire for an heir, which points almost directly to something other than what we associate with polygamy. The desire for it was for more than a child in that the family and its perpetuation was basic. In terms of biblical law, the biblical concept was that the family, the godly family, had to be perpetuated and the ungodly family cut off. The bastard was cut off from church and state insofar as any legal status was concerned, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, to the tenth generation. He might be a godly man, he might be highly respected, but he had no status as a citizen until the tenth generation of his family. This was carried over into Western law and into canon law, and the church barred bastards from church orders 
unless they had a special papal dispensation. Mace says, as he surveys the fact of Hebrew marriage in the scriptures, and I quote, we are bound to envisage the community as being in general almost entirely monogamous, unquote. The family was the basic social and religious unit. It was the key institution of society in terms of biblical law. We saw last week what the biblical laws of incest were, and we saw also that it applied not only to actual genetic relationship, but consanguinity plus affinity, that is, relationship by marriage, so that any marriage with someone who was an in-law by marriage was also forbidden. Such unions were classified as incest, although the modern geneticists will not classify them as incest. However, there is some evidence accumulating that sexual union does alter persons physically and that they do have some kind of genetic relationship as a result of their union. St. Paul speaks emphatically of this in 1 Corinthians 6.16, so that even casual union with prostitutes makes them, he declares, one flesh. This point is an interesting one in that there is some recognition of this fact that sexual union makes people one flesh and does communicate something in almost every culture. And of course it has been noted repeatedly that very often husband and wife, as the years progress, begin to look more and more alike, almost like brother and sister. And there are many curious and superstitious adaptations of this recognition that there is some kind of physical communication of property. For example, in Tantra Yoga and in the least of the troubadours and the Cathars and other medieval and modern groups, a great deal was premised medically on this belief. And it became very common as a medical cure right up to the modern time it's applied in Europe as a part of this superstition that there could be rejuvenation by contact with the young. Mahatma Gandhi incidentally believed this and used to sleep between two virgins every night. Pablo Picasso is very much of this opinion and he even steals the clothing of his boy and wears it in the hope of robbing his child of youth. These are superstitious applications of this belief, but nonetheless, there is something to it as yet unexplored by science, and scripture does assert that there is some communication of properties as a result of sexual union. Therefore, there can be no marriage between in-laws because they are now technically, according to scripture, one flesh. There is only one exception to this law, and that is the law of the Leverate, Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, which we read earlier. This law specifies that if a brother dies, then his brother had the obligation to, if the brother died without an heir, to take the widow and raise up a child, to beget a child on the widow, and that child would become the heir of the dead brother. If there were no brother, the next of kin, and the next of kin might be several uh, generations removed. This law was older than Moses. For example, we meet it in Genesis, in Judah's household, in Genesis 38. We meet it also in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, it is significant that there is a double 
consanguinity plus affinity which establishes the heirship because the two sons of Naomi both died. It was Ruth, the wife of one of the sons who was married by Boaz, a distant relative, and the child became the heir of Naomi and her husband, now dead, and inherited his estate. Moreover, this law of the leverage was common to many, many peoples of antiquity. In the Talmud, we have an entire book, Yabamoth, which is devoted to the legal aspects of the leverage. Josephus, in writing on this in his Antiquity of the Jews, remarks, and I quote, For this procedure will be for the benefit of the public, because thereby families will not fail, and the estate will continue among the kindred, and this will be for the solace of wives under their affliction, that they are to be married to the next relation of their former husband. Unquote. Thus Josephus said, the protection and propagation of a family is its basic purpose. And of course, this is what the scripture says, that his name may not be put out of Israel. Now let's examine this law briefly in history. Luther and Calvin both spoke about it. And it is interesting that both Lutherans and Calvinists had very little to say about it, although both Luther and Calvin had much to say concerning it. In fact, in every church you find, if you go back a few centuries, similar statements, whether uh, the Lutheran or the Reformed or the Catholic or the uh, Episcopal tradition, Luther said, and I quote, the law that a man should take the wife left behind by his brother and raise up a seed for the deceased brother was established for a very good reason. First, as the text sets forth, households should not die out, but should be multiplied. This concerns the fostering and enlarging of the commonwealth. Secondly, in this way, God provides for widows and the pitiable sex to sustain and support them. For the woman, by herself, a weak and pitiable vessel is even more so when she is a widow, since she is at the same time forsaken and despised. She enforces this charity, however, by means of an outstanding disgrace. Such a man is to be called shoeless, and people are to spit out before him, fie on you. He deserves the contempt of all. They are to spit on the ground and say, you have a fire on you coming because he does not cultivate or increase the commonwealth in which he sojourns and whose laws he enjoys. His bared foot is to be a sign of shame and a cause of unending denunciation. He deserves to be naked of foot, that is, without household and dependence, which are denoted by foot covering. For through this one deed he makes himself naked of foot in his obligation to sustain the household of his brother. Thus, the sign is similar to the deed in which he sins, unquote. Now, Calvin's comments are of interest in that they are equally emphatic, and I quote, This law has some similarity with that which permits a betrothed person to return to the wife whom he has not yet taken, since the object of both is to preserve to every man what he possesses so that he may not be obliged to leave it to strangers, but that he may have heirs begotten of his own body. For when a son succeeds the father, whom he represents, there seems to be hardly any change made. Hence to it is manifest how greatly pleasing to God it is that no one should be deprived of his property, since he makes a provision even for the dying that what they could not resign to others without regret and annoyance should be preserved to their offspring. Unless, therefore, his kinsmen should obviate the dead man's childlessness, this inhumanity is accounted a kind of theft. For since to be childless was a curse of God, it was a consolation in this condition to hope for a borrowed offspring. 
the name might not be altogether extinct, unquote. It is significant, therefore, that Calvin not only agreed with Luther, but he regarded failure in this area to be theft. Again, our Lord refers to this law in Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. This law, which is never talked about today, has a far more extensive history than most people realize and has been practiced in many countries either openly or in recent generations not altogether openly. It is still openly the law of the country in Ethiopia where the levirate is invoked not only when a, a member of a family dies childless but if in time of war or by accident he becomes emasculated. The practice of the levirate has been uh, present in New York City right up until the present among the very wealthy Jewish families there. And there is more than a little evidence that it is quietly practiced in Europe. Now, how shall we understand this law, which sounds so very strange and even forbidding and repulsive to both modern minds? To understand this law, we have to see the biblical doctrine of marriage briefly and afresh and to set the liberate in perspective. To understand, first of all, marriage in terms of biblical law, we must see that it is basic to the kingdom of God, to God's creative purpose for man and the earth. God created man and declared that all things in, on earth were to be brought under dominion by him, that it was his calling to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. This, then, is man's calling. And basic to the function of the family is that it is the central institution, not the church, nor the state, nor the school, but the family is the basic institution towards this purpose. The old Jewish marriage service, which dates back at least to the first century B.C., has in it seven blessings. And these seven blessings spoke of the purpose of marriage precisely in terms of this calling to fulfill God's purpose of creation, to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. And the fourth and seventh blessings in the marriage service of Israel which now have been used unchanged at least 21 centuries. Read as follows. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast made man in thine image after thy likeness, and hast prepared unto him out of his very self a perpetual fabric. Blessed art thou, O Lord, creator of man, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who hath created joy and gladness, bridegroom and bride, mirth and exaltation, pleasure and delight, love, brotherhood, peace, and fellowship. Soon may there be heard in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the jubilant voice of the bridegrooms from their canopies and of youth from their feasts of song. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who makest the bridegroom to rejoice with the bride. Marriage was thus basic to God's kingdom both before and after the fall. Second, because the family is basic to God's kingdom and is God's basic institution. Property is closely linked to the family. So that the family 
is the custodian in society of property, the family rather than the individual. In the Hebrew marriage service, a part of which I just read to you, the vows are of interest. The vows were not only repeated, they were recorded in a marriage contract, in the marriage license, with the specifics of the dowry and the settlement. And this is what the groom said, Be thou my wife, according to the laws of Moses and Israel. I will work for thee. I will honor thee. I will support and maintain thee in accordance with the custom of Jewish husbands who work for their wives, and honor, support, and maintain them in truth. Then, after specifying the exact amount of the dowry, and declaring that, in case of any trouble, she had prior claim on his estate, the bridegroom then vowed, All my property, even to the mantle on my shoulders, shall be mortgaged for the security of this contract and that sum. Now, this was not only the vow in the marriage service in Israel, but it was written, and until this document was written and signed with the amounts put up for the dowry, the marriage could not be consummated. Moreover, if at any time during the marriage, either by accident or fire or loss or theft, that marriage contract were lost, immediately there could be no sexual relationship between husband and wife until the contract were rewritten and re-signed. Only with that contract could there be any kind of marital relationship. Now this is fully in accord with biblical law. Man is a sinner. He should be ready to be under law. And the sad fact is it is especially necessary with those who are near and dear to us because we tend sometimes to take most advantage of those who trust us most. It's a very human failing. Marriage is already protected by a contract which is required by law. In other words, the law says that before a marriage is valid, you have to go before civil and or religious authorities and have a written contract. In other words, love is not enough. And any girl who says to a prospective husband, uh, love is not enough, I want a marriage contract, is being thoroughly biblical, thoroughly moral. The difference is that in Scripture, the dowry and the marriage contract specifying the sums were required. In other words, the young man had to have earned a certain amount to prove that he was a man. The modern bankruptcy law, incidentally, reflects this old biblical and Hebraic tradition in that, in bankruptcy, the home cannot be taken. And this is from the old Jewish and biblical tradition. The wife's dowry could not be seized by creditor. She is the husband's first creditor, has prior claim on that which is hers. Then, third, we saw some months ago that, according to the law, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, incorrigible juvenile delinquents and all habitual criminals have to be executed. They must be blotted out of the commonwealth. 
And of course, we still have remnants of this law in some states, although the Supreme Court now is considering such a law and almost certainly will rule unconstitutional the execution of habitual criminals. It's very seldom practiced except in a few southern states. However, this was basic to biblical law. The purpose of biblical law was to eliminate the ungodly, the criminal, the hoodlums. The ungodly families are denied by the law a future in the nation, and the godly families are given a stronger position. Next. As we have already pointed out, the bastards were not recognized as legitimate. Moreover, in any marriage classified as incest, marriage uh, by affinity, the offspring of the banned marriage were not allowed as heirs, as we saw last week, so that the children could be born, but they had no status as heirs. The family was eliminated. One law after another thus eliminated any sinful, ungodly person either from a standing as a citizen or executed them. It is significant also that in terms of the biblical principle that the law at no time can reward sin Marriage between a couple that had been guilty of adultery was forbidden. If they contracted it and the fact became known, the marriage was still void and was dissolved. The law cannot reward sin. Now this enables us to set the leverage in its context. The purpose of biblical law is to uproot the godless person and the godless family and to perpetuate the godly family. The godly family is the custodian of property. It transmits it to godly persons who alone can be heirs so that the ungodly child or the irresponsible child, even though he may be to a degree godly, is passed over because property is transmitted from godly family to godly family to strengthen the entire society. As a result, where there is a godly man, the law of the liberate operated to perpetuate that household and that property so that it be passed on to someone worthy. Now Josephus, as we saw, cited three reasons for the law. First, the continuation of the godly family. Second, the present preservation of property. And third, the welfare of widows. All three were clearly in view in the law of the Leverate. <clears throat> the Leverate is still a better answer than most modern ones. And, as I've indicated, it is still practiced in many parts of the world, including Europe, although not as openly as a few generations ago. And its practice may exist in this country still in Jewish communities. We do know that within a very short time ago, this was practiced among some of the wealthiest and most powerful American Jewish families, such as the Seligmans, among the most important financiers in this country. When the family is again restored to its biblical place and biblical law again prevails, then the liberate again will probably quietly take its place in that framework of law. Finally, a word concerning adoption, which is related to this. 
Adoption as a word appears in Scripture in the New Testament in a theological context. That is, St. Paul speaks of our adoption in Christ as sons of God. The word reflected a family fact. But adoption in the Bible differed radically from the modern practice of adoption. There was no legal adoption in biblical times until the child reached maturity and proved his character. So that the legal adoption came only with the mature seasoned person who had proven his faith and character. We have a reference, for example, in Genesis to such an adoption when Abraham, believing that he would have no heir, adopted Eliezer of Damascus, Genesis 15, verses 2 and 3, to be his heir. In other words, a tried and true servant, a man of mature faith and character. Abraham chose out of his household, out of his slaves and servants, to be his heir prior to the birth of Isaac. Thus, faith and character are basic to heirship, and maturity was required provide evidence of these facts before adoption became a legal reality. Thus the law of the liberate unfolds to us not only an important aspect of biblical law, but the significance of the family in biblical society and of property in its relationship to the family. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thy word is true. And we pray, our Father, that by thy grace we may again have a society established on thy word. For again, thy word prevails and thy law word governs for again the family is the basic institution of society and the pretensions of church and state are confounded and theft no longer practiced in high places and both give us grace our father to live by thy word and make us ever valiant in the defense of thy law order. Grant our Father that speedily the day may come when we may again have godly society where every man dwells in thy peace and in thy prosperity. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson, yes. Leverate, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. And lever means brother. So the law of uh, marriage relating to the death of a brother or a near kinsman. cannot be rewarded, it has to be punished. Now, the bastard might be a godly man, as I indicated, 
but he still bears the penalty. And therefore, the father, no matter how much he may like him, cannot make him a legitimate citizen. As a result, while he may have a good standing in the community and be well-liked, citizenship is reserved only to the legitimate child. Only after a long period of time, ten generations is quite a period of time, if the family has during that time been demonstrably good, can it have any standing? Now, you might say this is hard on the individual, although uh, he still has the right to earn a living and to live as well as he can, but the basic purpose of law is not in terms of the individual or in terms of society, but in terms of God's law order. And God's law order says that there must be a protection for that which is the kingdom of God. And there must be penalties, even though this is hard to take. Yes? In the case of Ishmael, he was not illegitimate. And in that case, it was failure on Ishmael's part. He was clearly ungodly. And he, and he had to be cast out for that reason, disinherited. Now, subsequently, there is evidence, of course, that Ishmael became a believer. When he was thrown out, and he was in the desert, and in difficult circumstances, we are told that he prayed unto the Lord, and God answered his prayer. So, uh, being tossed out was what led to the saving of Ishmael. No, he was not. Because he, uh, Hagar was taken under uh, a law of the day which provided that a secondary wife or a concubine could be taken to provide an heir if the uh, wife were childless. Yes. is of European origin, not biblical. Because in the Bible, the inheritance was not to the oldest necessarily, but to the godly son or the most responsible. And in more cases uh, than I can name at the moment in the Bible, in almost every case, the eldest son is passed over because he has proven himself not to be worthy. And of course, this was the reason for the jealousy of Joseph. Reuben was the firstborn. He was passed over for his immorality. Simeon and Levi for their cruelty. And uh, Judah was next in line, but he was irresponsible. And so Joseph was made the heir. Now, the difference then, assuming that there were three or four, three sons, and one of them, whether he was the first, second, or third, is immaterial, was chosen as the heir, he would get a double portion. The estate would be divided four ways, and the uh, one who was made the central heir would get 
two portions and the other uh, sons each one portion. And it could be on, on special cases that the girl was the one who was the heir. She could be uh, the heiress, yes. She could take the name and then her husband would take uh, the father-in-law's name. Now, you find this very commonly in England and Scotland, even to this day. In such cases, you have the hyphenated name. Smith Patterson or Jones uh, Wilson there will be a hyphenated name he adds his father-in-law's name to his own with a hyphen yes Today, you'd get in trouble with the law. That's why where it does exist, especially in European countries, in the European tradition, or such people as they've come over to this country as sub rosa. It's clearly illegal in terms of uh, modern law today. You see, what our law has done is, first of all, to attack the centrality of the family and to attack property. Property today really belongs to the state. You have it by sufferance, and the state tells you how much of what you earn you can keep. The uh, income you have as take-home pay is an exemption. In other words, the state exempts it to you. It, it claims everything. The 16th Amendment doesn't have a single restricting clause. So your income and your property, the inheritance law specifies how much you can leave. And it only takes an emendation of the law for the state to claim all your property. It already has, in effect, claimed it. It has the jurisdiction to say how much it will leave to you or to your heirs of your property and income. Now, this is why the whole framework of biblical law seems so alien to us, because today, both family, marriage, property, are all the jurisdiction of the state. Yes? During uh, biblical times, the daughters, in the were sons in that, did the daughters ever Yes. Yes, that was up to the parents. And, uh, if there were no sons and only daughters, they, of course, inherited. The, uh, the, uh, in that case, the son-in-law took the name of the uh, uh, father-in-law. Yes? In terms of biblical law, yes. Not under civil law. It used to be in this country, the old biblical laws uh, were still valid here until not too long ago, and in some states until very recently, but they're a dead letter now where they have not been abolished. But in terms of the biblical law, a man could not marry his sister-in-law unless it were a liberate situation. Yes. No. Right. If they have daughters, the uh, one of the daughters can be made the heir together with her husband. Yes.
But we can never pray for something in contradiction to God's word. For example, uh, I have a prayer at home in a volume uh, that was written by a thief. And he prayed and uh, said that he would give a certain percentage to God if he allowed him to get away with his difficult job without any trouble. Now, uh, God doesn't hear that kind of prayer. Incidentally, he got away with it, but it wasn't by God's grace. It was the policeman's carelessness. Our time is just about over. A couple of announcements briefly. There are some announcements on the lectern in the back for the Hans Holt Seminar on the Dollar Crisis this Saturday at Knox Berry Farm, all day long. And I do urge your attendance to this seminar because I believe that uh, Dr. Senholt is a very able economist. Unlike many others, he is not merely academic. He not only teaches uh, economics, but he also is a practical businessman who makes money. I think that proves he's an economist who knows what's going on. And uh, there are some economists who can teach uh, economics very ably, but when it comes to applying it, are uh, uh, very sorry characters. Uh, I could tell a couple of stories about that, including one I just heard yesterday, but it's in confidence, so I can't, unfortunately. The second announcement, we are having a uh, Chalcedon conference conducted by Gary North and myself for college-age youth. This will be on August the 16th, Saturday, all day long, at the Dempsey-Tigler offices in Glendale, 413 North Brand. So that if you do know any college-age youth, please urge them to come. We will have very soon some announcements available concerning the conference. And that's all. Thank you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules. Dot com.